My name is Scott Challoner and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. Now, as regular listeners of our show will know very well, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And to this end, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined on today's show by Rod Turner, founder of the Income Through Property Group. Um, Rod, very warm welcome to yourself and thanks for joining us on the show. It's a real pleasure having you with us. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Yeah, uh, my pleasure, Rod. And uh, just to kind of uh, shed some light on the sort of your line of work uh, for the listeners tuning in that might not be familiar with you, um, you're essentially a property development and investment business, aren't you, that helps sort of achieve strong ROI through property. And uh, just wanted to find out a little bit more about that and uh, what it is that you specialise in in your own words. Absolutely. So um, we really specialise in UK residential property. Um, is, is the number one kind of thing we focus on. We look at what the risks are, what the opportunities are, and where investors really can put their money to get a specific type of return based on what their profile is. So some people will be willing to take a bit more risk, others won't be. Um, the great thing about property is that it can mimic fixed income, it can mimic private equity, it can mimic public equity to a point as well and it's also got a a use case like commodities so from an investment point of view it's a very interesting investment class and that's certainly what part of the reason that i love it and um and uh, and yeah that, that's kind of what we do yeah and we'll certainly kind of get into a little bit more detail about the uh, the current status of the industry um, in just a moment i'm sure but just before we kind of uh, get to that i'd like to backtrack a little bit and just kind of get an idea as to sort of your journey starting uh, that business rod uh, because you've had you've got a background haven't you in of sort of growing businesses and operating in senior roles so did you always kind of know that sort of going into business for yourself was going to be the way for you early on in your career yeah absolutely um i from a young age, I was probably always very unemployable, um, a very kind of um, uh, headstrong, thought I knew best about everything, which was not a great thing because I had to learn the hard way that I definitely didn't. Um, and yeah, I mean, out of school, I was always kind of quite entrepreneurial, the kid in the playground selling sweets and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I, I knew I always wanted to kind of work for myself. And it was just really a matter of what I was going to do. I made um, I made the mistake of, of starting out in starting a business where I thought actually there was a good opportunity to make some money from it. Mm. Um, and annoyingly, it wasn't something that I was particularly passionate about. And it took me a long time to realize that actually uh, you need that passion and you need kind of to feel that feeling where you're going to be excited to get out of bed and kind of take on the day um, in any business that you're in. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's always going to be points in any business or any role or any job that you don't like. Um, but on the whole, what you want to, what, what I want really, I worked out what I really craved was that feeling of accomplishment. Um, I, I wanted to feel at the end of the day like I had succeeded in something that I, I um, I, I wanted that satisfaction of feeling like I've accomplished something, um, and to get that, I really, I really needed to find something that I was passionate about, and started doing kind of small-scale property development, as, as most people who fall into this do. They they kind of probably buy their own home and mm. do it up. I got a huge amount of satisfaction from seeing 
something that wasn't particularly nice and wasn't particularly useful transform into something that was nice and was useful. Um, and and that was really, really big for me and people call it the property bug and things like that. And then I kind of started to focus more on the financials and the investment case um, for property. And that's where I really kind of started to fall in love with it and become very, very passionate about it. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. And so uh, based on kind of your journey, then, would you say that if you were to advise any young entrepreneur or aspiring entrepreneur that maybe wants to start a business of their own to really kind of, you know, pursue something that you really are passionate about? Absolutely. I mean, there's a what's the great saying that um, work in something you love and you never do a, a day of work in your life or something mm. along those lines. I mean, look, you've got to be passionate about it. Otherwise, how are you going to become an expert in it how are you going to where's your edge amongst the competition and and that's what business is it's about how can you beat the benchmark um certainly from an investment point of view but even if you're selling widgets i mean how are you going to sell more widgets and make better profit than the others or it could be that your actual business case is to make a a a social impact difference but you've still got to measure that impact and how are you measuring that impact against the benchmark and how are you going to beat that? And if you're not passionate about something, it, it, it's harder to become very, very good at it. Um, and certainly it's, it's, it's less sustainable because if you're not passionate about something but you are good at it, I mean, you're probably not going to want to be doing that forever. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, I would advise find something you're passionate about and then look at where there's a, a marriage value in terms of, what you can get out of it from a financial point of view, from a satisfaction point of view. I mean, it's not always about money. Um, Like I said, it might just be that you want to feel that feeling that you've made a difference. And Mm. and that's a a huge thing as well. It is certainly, and um, obviously your passion, of course, is uh, is property, and it's an industry that um, you know certainly in the uh, in the limelight at the moment, given the current economic situation with you know rising interest rates, rising mortgages as well. So. from your perspective, I mean, it's like when people are looking to invest in property, what are the kind of key things that they need to be very, very aware of in the current economic climate? Because it is a difficult market for buyers at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, to start with, property is an absolutely vast asset class. It's mm. the second biggest behind derivatives. It's a multi-trillion dollar global asset class. So, And then if you just take residential property into that, you can invest in various different ways. So when we typically think of kind of investing in a property, buying a house to do up and sell on or buying a house to rent out, what we're really talking about there is direct investment. So it's where you are active in the roles of that investment. We've also got other investment cases for property like REITs and property funds as well, where you can invest more at arm's length and someone else is managing that asset allocation for you. Mm. Um, so it's a broad spectrum. Um, in terms of what people are looking for, I think it's got to start with what they want to get out of an investment. Um, what's their risk profile? How much time and energy do they have? to put into it if it is going to be something that they've got to go and find and 
maybe find the builders to do the work, find the plumber to do the maintenance when things go wrong, mm-hmm. find a letting agent, all these kind of things. So what's really their capability? What's the time frame they want to be in that investment for? Is it short term? Is it for 20 years? Um, how much money are they going to deploy? Uh, and what's the exit? So is it something that they want to leave to their children? Is it something that actually they want to sell when they come retirement and go and drink pina coladas on the beach with? So it's so subjective as to what the actual individual behind that investment wants to get out of it. And that's the way to start. And then you can look at engineering the right kind of property, the right type of finance, all around that. Yeah, um, and it's important, isn't it, to really make the correct decision that's right for the investor, isn't it? Certainly in a time like this, because um, there's a lot of noise, isn't there, around how difficult it is for the buy-to-let market at the moment, given what's going on with interest rates. So that certainly is something where people seem to be more scurrying to get out rather than essentially looking to sort of hurry to get into it. Absolutely. Look, I mean, we we can go down a bit of a rabbit hole here in terms of um, the housing market in the UK at the moment. I think we'd start by saying um, what the media puts out there and what the reality is, is very different. When you hear housing stats uh, written in the, in the newspapers, what you've got to think about is what's the context here. Mm. So quite often we might hear things like, um, uh, a, a great example is house prices are now 11 times earnings or something like that. Um, and actually, that really doesn't tell us much. Um, a much better level of affordability is looking at affordability in, in two parts. So one is what's the level of deposit needed to pay for a first-time buyer as a percentage of their household income. Another is what are the mortgage servicing costs as a percentage of their household income? Um, For example, we can look back to 1989 where house prices might have been only three times earnings, Mm -hmm. but the amount of someone's income that they were spending on their mortgage was about 70% versus now where it's about 30%. So housing is a lot more affordable at the moment than it has been in the past. Mm Real house prices, so inflation-adjusted house prices, are cheaper now than they were in 2007. So there's lots of kind of things to consider on that. Um, one, one of the big things that people are looking at at the moment with interest rates going up, and I'll kind of I'll go, I'll go back into interest rates in a sec, but is is that we're doomed because interest rates have shot up, which absolutely they have done. They've Mm. Your mortgage rates have typically gone up by about 800% in a very, very short space of time. So that is concerning. However, what is different is that the majority of houses owned in this country have no mortgage. So it doesn't mm. affect them. It's over 40% of homes are owned outright. Um, of the 28% of homes that are owned by occupiers, so homeowners who live in their own homes, only 28% of those are owned by homeowners. And out of that, there's only a few, I think it's around 30% of those have mortgages on them. Out of those mortgages, there's 1.7 million homes are due to come off a fixed rate. Now, that might sound like a lot, but actually, um, 
that's only about 2% of, of homes are about to come off a fixed rate mortgage in, in the next 12 months. So the majority of people who have mortgages are on fixed rate terms. Um, so really what that's saying is that 1.7 million people will be exposed, but the levels of mortgage debt that they have is actually, on average, quite low. It's around 40%. Mm. So yes, don't get me wrong, there will be people who who will hurt at this point, but it's not going to be on the same level as something like 1989, where the majority of homeowners were on variable rates. So when interest rates did rocket up, they, the majority of people did feel it at that point in time. Um, so that's kind of the, the first thing about affordability. Mm. In terms of mortgage rates, we need to be careful about talking about base rates and mortgage rates because mm. they're very different. Now, for the last 12 years, mortgage rates have been heavily influenced by what we call swap rates, which is the level at which banks can, can lend to each other, and, and they are affected by UK gilts. So it's very sensible that people are looking at these first and foremost and seeing them absolutely rocket up in price, which typically would normally mean in the last 12 years when interest rates have been very low, that actually the price of mortgages is going to go up. But what we need to remember is once mortgages uh, or base rates get to a certain level, banks and lenders don't just make their margin from the base rate they actually start to make more of a margin from savers depositing money. And so the last time in this country that the base rate, the Bank of England base rate was at 5%, mortgage rates were actually under that. They were under that level of the base rate because mm. banks can get more of their money from deposits, lend it out at a higher rate, and that's actually where they create more margin. So we've got to be careful about benchmarking things to specific points in time that maybe mm. aren't relevant. Um, and so I'd say to people, yes, absolutely, you need to be careful of what you're doing. You need to consider rental uh, stress tests. Will the rent cover the mortgage payments, things like that? Um, but also, it's not a time quite yet to panic, although it is a time to be very, very cautious, I'd say. Yeah, and I, th I think it's one of those things, isn't it, where if you sort of panic at this point, I mean, you're more than likely to maybe sort of look at a permanent loss of capital. I mean, I did speak to um, sort of an investment uh, manager um, on this show um, a little while back, and uh, he said it was sort of like an analogy of kind of walking up the stairs with a yo-yo, and it's like the yo-yo is your investment, but over time you will find that your capital does go up as long as you remain patient. And um, it's where, you know, if you're on a roller coaster with all of the uh, the dips and everything and you try and get out while you're up there upside down, that's when you're looking at the permanent loss. But rather than waiting it out and sort of letting things stabilise, because history does show, doesn't it, that this isn't unprecedented times like people say it is. I mean, we've seen interest rates rocket above 10% before, but obviously the, the context, as you say, there was very, very different and it's different again here. It's very much a case of history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it often rhymes, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I love that analogy of the yo-yo upstairs because if you were to buy a property now, the day after you bought it, it your equity in that property will be far less than what you put in because mm. you've got frictional costs like stamp duty, legal fees, and all these other things that you pay. So absolutely, over time, it's, it's, it's a hugely important thing 
to get right, which is why we kind of go back to what does the investor want to get out of this? How much time do they want to be invested in something? Um, liquidity plays a huge role in property because it's not a very liquid asset class, which can be a bad thing, but it can also be a good thing because when the market is yo-yoing, um, it can it can cause people to want to make rash, rash decisions. And actually, the good thing about liquidating property is it's not very easy and it can take a long time. So by the time you've got round to even getting close to liquidating it, once you've made that decision, the market might have actually recovered mm. and you're in a position where you don't need to. So um, absolutely, I think that's that's absolutely great advice, yeah. Yeah, it's key, isn't it? Um, so when we think about sort of the hallmarks of um, a, a good investor, I suppose, in a sense, I mean, as humans, we're not really hardwired to do it, are we? I think uh, there is sort of um, a little bit of a risk averseness to us sometimes. And there is that tendency to, you know, panic when, you know, there are there, there are things in the news where well, obviously we're seeing all oh, this, this crisis and that crisis and this time it's different. Well, history shows that it isn't. I mean, and eventually things always level themselves out and it is just about sort of, teaching ourselves to sort of have you know have that patience isn't it and just understand exactly you know what it is that we uh, we sort of want from our investments and also try and keep your portfolio as diverse as possible as well and there are ways that you can do that in property too absolutely i mean look diversification is one of those interesting things where you talk to kind of investment managers who are managing kind of billions of pounds um Obviously, diversification is going to be different. But if you've got someone who's got 30 grand that they want to invest, then diversification is very different mm. because really what it is is what what can you afford to lose? How much longer is it going to take you to earn that back? If you're investing in your, I don't know, a young single person who's uh, got capability of going and working in a job and earning £20 an hour, then you know that actually, worst case scenario, if you were to lose 10 grand of that investment, it would take you this amount of time to go and earn that back. Now, if you are a 70-year-old person who's got dependents that rely on your income then and, your, and that total amount invested is 2 million, then absolutely diversification is going to play a much bigger role. So again, people focus sometimes... Um, what tends to happen is people are either far too risky when at times where they shouldn't, or they're far too cautious where actually they haven't realized that what they can potentially lose is, is quite minimal um, in, in relation and in, in context to what they own. So, yes, it, again, it comes back to it's so subjected to the investor. There is no such thing as this is the best investment. It's mm. this is the inve best investment for me. Yeah, exactly. It is. It's uh, it's got to be something that's suited to the individual, as you say, and really kind of tailored to their requirements. Because as you say, the uh, the requirements of a younger person are going to be very different to somebody who is much, much older. And do you think as well that something that does play a part in this is the fact that sometimes we don't fully understand risk itself? And that's maybe something that, you know, we could we could better educate ourselves on. Absolutely. I think that is the key thing. Um, investment is all about pricing risk. Um, and it's an incredibly difficult skill because really what you're pricing is the unknown. Uh, what are the factors that can come in and hurt us? Um, and when we talk about kind of risks, you always talk about risk mitigation tactics. So mm -hmm. when you're 
mitigating a risk in investment, really what you're talking about is, can I insure against this risk? Can I hedge against this risk? Or can I diversify against this risk? And they're all quite different. And really, it kind of comes back to correlation and things like that, which we won't go into because it's fairly dull. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think think people need to realize how to price risk and understand what are the risks that could affect their investment and how much of that capital is at risk. Um, A lot of people go into investments concerned about what's the return on their investment going to be, whereas probably they should be more focused on what's the likelihood of that capital actually coming back first and foremost, let alone any return on the investment, it's the return of the investment. So that's something else to, to consider. But absolutely, pricing risk is an, is an incredibly valuable skill um, that is one of these things that probably should be taught in, in schools a bit better. I mean, we do it every day when we kind of think about, right, am I going to leave the house? Well, there's a risk that I might get hit by a bus. But actually, what are those things that we're going to do? What's the likelihood probability? Yes, it can happen. But we're pricing that risk every day by going, well, do you know what? The probability of that happening is here. The likelihood is there. I'm making a decision to leave the house today. So it's the same in everything we do. It's just putting a financial element onto it. And also the other thing is to what what people often forget when coming into property and that direct property investment that we spoke about is they'll look at the risk, they'll look at the potential return, but what they forget about is the effort, time and stress involved mm. in it. So it's all well and good if I can go and get a, I don't know, 7% return or or 20% return on something. Um, but if I'm having to put eight hours of my time per day into that and managing that investment and making sure that the builders are there on time, the tenants are okay, the letting agents doing what they should be doing. I mean, am I pricing that in as well? Because really that's that's a that's a job that's not an investment so what what is quite difficult is how do you benchmark that well firstly you've got to put a price on your time effort and stress and those sleepless nights worrying about kind of not being able to get hold of a plumber at 3 a.m when mm. the rats flooded or something um how do you put a price on that and it's pricing that into your calculations when you're looking at potential returns um because quite often and more often than not it might be much easier to invest in something else that's a bit more passive. And also then it's looking at what are the tax implications. There's been huge tax implications in property over the last few years, mm. um, which has caused a lot of kind of landlords to leave the sector. We'll talk about kind of the issue that landlords leaving the sector has on the rental market and things like that. But they're big. So how you invest under what wrapper or under what entity is it personal is it under a limited company is it through a pension is it within an ISA um, all these things really matter when you're looking at what are you going to get back in your in your pocket at the end of the day after all these kind of costs um, because that's really what we all care about what can we go and spend in Sainsbury's at the end of the day mm. uh, which is which is the vital thing um, and I think people often often forget about those points. 
Yeah, exactly right. And you did mention as well sort of tax implications and how sort of in the uh, the buy-to-let market that's having um, a real impact. And I suppose when we see sort of an exodus of sort of suppliers leaving the market in that way, landlords pulling out, I guess what happens then is the supply comes down and all of a sudden that drives sort of rental costs up elsewhere, doesn't it? So there's always that knock-on effect that needs to be, uh, that needs to be considered. That's why rents are rocketing up. Um, the problem you've got is stock levels have completely dwindled. Um, I mean, rents in this country, uh, they're quite complex, but essentially it's based around what someone can afford to live on. Um, in in the in London and the South East, you tend to find that actually rents as a percentage of someone's income will creep towards that 60% mark. Um, whereas around the rest of the country, it's closer to 30%. The reason it's much higher in London and high-value areas is because the rest of someone's income, um, the staples of living that that's spent on, for example, um, food, transport, clothing, is relatively the same wherever you are in the country. But it's the housing factor that changes. So it's in higher-value areas, it's higher. And obviously, wages are higher. Um, but not proportionally. So you can afford to spend a bit more of your pay packet per month on on those housing costs. Now, where it becomes quite difficult is where you, I mean, we've had the energy crisis going on at the moment. I mean, everything has has to finish with a crisis at the moment, doesn't it? But we've had this energy issue where energy has rocketed up, despite the government putting kind of caps on it. And, And what we're seeing now is that, What's quite interesting is if we look at the bottom 10% um, of earners in the country, so if you're looking at households, the bottom 10%, before April, their energy costs made up around 7% of their their total income. Now, at the moment, after we've had the the latest rise, which was a few Mm. weeks ago, that has now gone up to over 20% of their income spent on energy. Now, where is that coming from? Because when we're talking about the bottom 10% of earners, that's not going to come from their discretionary spending. That's Mm. not coming from holidays and buying the latest iPhone and things like that. For the top top 10%, it is, but it actually hasn't really made a dent. It's less than 1% difference it's made to their incomes uh, being spent on energy. So what we're seeing when these prices go up, is it's the most vulnerable in society that are the most affected. Mm. Now, what hasn't helped that is what we call our local housing allowance or LHA rates have not gone up. And they certainly haven't gone up. We're seeing in the the news at the moment um, with all the issues going on with kind of politics is are these housing benefit rates going to go up in line with inflation or wages or or be stuck. Now, it's going to be very dangerous if they don't go up with inflation or wages, because, well, really inflation. Um, and the reason being is that if that doesn't happen, you're going to find there's a lot more homelessness. Because why would a landlord rent their property out to someone on an LHA rate where the difference between the LHA rate and the private sector is growing and growing and growing. Um, typically, we always benchmark against the LHA rate because that's, that's always the bottom amount that we can realistically get. 
Now, when you've got private rents, the gap between that and private rents growing as much as it is now, it's really not a good thing for society. And what we need is more of a carrot rather than a stick from the government to entice landlords to actually rent those. So by increasing that, that's going to help. Um, we, we do have an issue at the moment with supply and demand with landlords leaving through tax implications. Mm. Um, but it's not just tax implications. It's through um, compliance issues. We currently have almost 200 pieces of legislation that you need to adhere to to rent a flat or a house to someone, which is a, an insane amount of legislation. Now, most people are for compliance. They want to rent a good quality home to someone who's going to pay and look after it. The problem is we keep spending money on legislation that actually was covered by previous legislation that just wasn't enforced. Mm. So there's this constant kind of merry-go-round of new legislation coming up, which people have to do. There was this ludicrous thing in Liverpool where they did something called selective licensing scheme, where they charged mm. landlords a fee um, to be able to be get a license in order to rent out their property. Not one inspection was made on those licenses or, or, or those properties, which is absolutely crazy. And so, obviously, it, it got scrapped. But what a huge cost to the taxpayer to get that. What a huge cost to landlords, and that comes off their bottom line. So why, if you were looking to invest, would you go into buy-to-let, where it's going to take a lot of your time, a lot of your stress, a lot of effort, and actually, because of the tax implications, what you get in your back pocket at the end of the day is far less than what you could get elsewhere. It's not very motivating for a landlord, and that's why we're seeing a lot of these landlords leave the market. And that is obviously creating issues around stock levels and supply and demand, where we've got renters that want to rent. At the same time, with interest rates going up, people are putting off house purchases, so mm. they're renting for longer. Um, this is causing rents to shoot up as well. Um, so this is definitely a big problem for people at the moment. And it's a problem for the UK and society. We've, we're not building enough properties. Um, we don't have the labour force to build them, even if the planning um, policy was was loosened up a bit to allow that. I mean, the planning policy in this country is very, very difficult to get through. Mm. Um, so there's, there's not a huge amount um, on the side of... Uh, of, of, of getting rents down over time and making things more affordable for renters unless these things at grassroots level can be changed. And that's that's a big issue, and it's very difficult in a political system where you have a housing minister that changes. Um, I think we've had 14 in the last 11 years, mm. um, which is absolutely insane, and it just shows that it's not a priority for government. Um and which is quite annoying because if, when you've got a political system that's done on a four-year term, it's hard to make long-term plans and infrastructural mm. plans. Look, for everything that China gets wrong, one thing they do right is, is looking at things with a long-term view. And that's really something that I think um, needs to change for there to be a changing in kind of housing and affordability for people. 
Yeah, I think that's very right. More long-term thinking as opposed to the short-term thinking. I think that's incredibly important, and it is certainly a topic that has come up on this uh, on this very show before. And uh, just talking about the future as well, Rod. Just before we do wrap up on the uh, the program today, um, I'd be interested to understand kind of what your sort of personal and business priorities are going to be over the uh, the next year or so as we hopefully navigate this situation and also see some positive changes from government on this. Fingers crossed. Yeah, look, so I I mean, we're obviously in it, so we already have a small market share. And actually, when you see landlords leaving the market, it's a great opportunity for us to pick up market share. So we're certainly looking to grow at that point. And what we're seeing is that although landlords are leaving the market, the amount of properties that landlords have now, on average per landlord, is starting to increase. Um, there's still a decline in the amount of properties available for rent, which we've discussed. Um, so it's certainly something that we're looking at. We're looking at creating um, more more housing that is more energy efficient because we're realizing that actually that affects people's disposable income. Um, so that's one thing we've recently done. We've recently built a block of flats, which are all A-rated on, on the energy certificates which is great. It means cheaper rent for those people living there. So hopefully it means they'll stay there longer because mm. they can afford to. Um, that's something it's, that's very important. Now, that's a whole issue in itself because when you've got properties that are worth 50 grand in the north, um, to bring them up to energy standards, because now well, going forward, it's likely that the government's going to bring out rulings that actually you can't let a property unless it's rated as a C or above. Quite often, the works required to do that are more expensive than the properties were. Mm. So it's, it doesn't make financial sense. So there needs to be something that can encourage people to do that if that's what the government really wants to do. The other thing is training people into getting that done because where is the labor force that's going to carry out these works? We've seen with the cladding scandal recently, the biggest issue there was not getting the money out of the government it was finding people to actually uh, do the restorations on the cladding. Mm. Um, There's lots of issues there. I'd like to see um, more encouragement uh, for the labour force to get into some of these roles that really are missing, so in in construction, definitely. I'd love to see some of the planning policy changes, um, and I'd love to see a housing minister that actually stays in the role for a decent period of time so they can get anything done because that's half the problem. I completely agree. I mean, the turnover of housing ministers is absolutely shocking, isn't it? And so that that would be a, certainly a very positive start from the uh, the government perspective. And let's uh, sort of, you know, keep our fingers crossed and uh, sort of hang tight that we do see the changes that we need to see in the industry. And as we start to see things really taking shape, Rod, I think it'd be great to catch up and have you back on the show just to see how things are really moving in the marketplace. Absolutely, I'd love to. Thanks a lot. Yep, I certainly would as well. It's been an immense pleasure welcoming Rod Turner, founder of the Income Through Property Group, onto today's programme. I do hope that all of the listeners um, do share that sentiment as well and have found the discussion as eye-opening and as intriguing as I. And uh, for those listening in, I mean, if you do have your own um, sort of opinion to add to the discussion, I mean, you can do so via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash contact hyphen us to leave a comment, or you can even apply to be on the programme yourself to talk about this or any other topical matter or issue that may be relevant to you and your political 
difficult there would be leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply if that is of interest to you um rod thanks again for taking the time to join us on the show today it's been brilliant having you with us and uh, by all means do take care and i'm sure we'll catch up soon thanks scott and once again to all listening in i've been your host scott challoner on today's episode of the leaders council podcast talking all things property and uh, until next time please do take care all and goodbye